we are finally getting into the meat of the letter of the book of Romans, and I still have three of the journals left. So um, basically, again, on one side it has the scripture, the other side is just a place to take notes. If you want one, claim them right after the service. I'll throw them down right here, and uh, hopefully those will be gone because we don't want to be too far into Romans and miss the opportunity to give all those out. So um, we're, as I said, into the, the meat of the letter. We spent the last two weeks looking at really the opening greetings. Paul, the apostle, identifying himself, writing to the Romans, the church in Rome, identifying who he's writing to. And then last week was his opening thanksgiving and prayer for the Romans and his desire to visit them. Um, that's what he does in almost all of his letters. And then he gave the theme, what is likely the theme of the whole letter, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. For in the gospel, a righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now he's going to begin to explain the gospel. And to do so, he's going to begin by clarifying the need of a savior. And he is going to give a sweeping, all-inclusive statement about the breadth and depth of our sinful nature. The the doctrine of sin has been said to be the most self-evident of Christian doctrines. All you have to do is turn on the news. All you have to do is live life or look within your own heart and you will see the truth of the doctrine of sin. That something is wrong with this world. Something is not right. There is a moral evil happening in this world. And Paul's going to spend about two and a half chapters really diagnosing this problem. Diagnosing the poison of sin or the cancer of our depravity. And the reason why he's doing that is not because he wants to be gloomy or to be a downer. is he wants to make it clear why the gospel is necessary. The more we time we spend recognizing clearly, diagnosing rightly the nature of our sinful nature, the more we treasure the gospel, the more beautiful, the more clearly we see what it means to have an antidote, to have a remedy to sin in Jesus. So we're going to just cover one portion of his description of the sweeping nature of sin. And my request for you guys is as you consider it, as we listen to it, you guys know that here, those who are regular here, that we preach the word as it is written. We try to be faithful to the text as best as possible, even if it's offensive to me or to us or to our culture. That all throughout, what is going through your mind is that we, how glorious a Savior we have. <laughs> how great a Savior we have that would rescue us from the nature of our sin. We're going to look at Romans eight, uh, Romans 1, verse 18. Romans 1, verse 18. And we will finish the chapter today, Lord willing, to verse 32. We read this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and preaching and application of his word this morning. Here's where we're going, by the way, verses 18 to 23, that our minds, our minds are darkened by sin. Then 24 to 27, our bodies are dishonored by sin, and then that last section, 28 to 32, kind of a drop pan catch all. Um, our entire lives are broken by sin. But what a glorious Savior we have. He starts there by talking about how sin has affected our minds. The, the wrath of God is revealed. God's wrath, as opposed to his righteousness, remember the gospel is that the righteousness of God is revealed, but before the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, The wrath of God is revealed. His opposition, his antagonism against sin. God is the judge of all the earth. God, when he sees sin, is the one we are accountable to and have to answer to for sin. But wrath is not just a judicial statement. In fact, if your local judge um, is you know, sort of knocking, uh, deciding on the verdict. Uh, he doesn't necessarily have to have any wrath, any emotional response to it. But God, when he sees evil, when he sees oppression, when he sees genocide, when he sees child abuse in all forms of evil, there is actually an emotional response of anger against it. And God, according to what Paul is saying here, will bring about a response of wrath against it. And as he says here, against all sin of man. That, that all people, in one sense, know the truth. And as he says here, we suppress it. That in our minds, we understand there has to be a God and a creator, but we, we attempt to suppress the truth, to hide it, to ignore it, to pretend as if it isn't there. That the knowledge of God, as he says here, is plain to everybody. And he specifically lays it out, that his invisible attributes... The nature of who God is, his eternal power, obviously looking at all of creation, the fact that there is a universe filled with life and beauty, 
demonstrates the power of God and his divine nature, that he is a God of order, of wisdom, of mercy and kindness, of beauty. All of his divine nature is revealed in his creation. All human beings, and here he's kind of focusing in particularly on the Gentiles who are far from God at the time here. They know God and they still do not thank him or honor him. They're futile in their thinking. They're foolish in their darkened hearts. They may claim to be wise. Great philosophers, but in actuality, when it regards to God, we are fools. And he mentions specifically the sin of idolatry. They exchange the glory of God for images. And that is certainly a description of what human beings have done throughout history. Images of human beings, images of birds, images of beasts of the field, and even images of creeping things. Just to give you one illustration among many um, we could look at, uh, thinking of the creeping things, I think of snakes. Snakes, right? Most people don't like snakes. Snakes have been worshipped in almost every part of this world throughout history. The ancient Sumerians worshipped a serpent god named Ningish Zeta. And before the arrival of the Israelites, there were snake cults well established throughout Canaan. The ancient Egyptians worshipped snakes, especially the cobra. They associated the sun god Ra with a snake, but also many of the other deities were considered serpents. In Africa, the cult of the serpent deity called Dangbe. There's also the rainbow snake, um, a cosmic serpent which would cause earthquakes and floods and even controlled the motions of the stars and the planets. The American Indian, the rattlesnake, was worshipped by the Natchez people. In India, there were carved representations of cobras or nagas. Food and flowers and fires were burned in the shrines to the serpent god's image. In Korean mythology, um, the wealth goddess appears as a black snake with ears and her seven daughters are all snakes. In Japan, a major serpent deity has a shrine dedicated to it and is active and venerated to even this present day, and it assumes human form and visits women and begets fertility. Uh, In Greece, the Ophion, which just means serpent, ruled the world before Kronos, which is the Greek word for time, ruled the world. In Haitian voodoo, the creator is represented as a serpent. You see the worship of serpents throughout Europe, throughout Rome, the Roman Empire, throughout the Celts. I thought this was perhaps the most telling. In Gnosticism, the biblical serpent, the one that we actually read about in Genesis, was praised and worshipped and thanked, thanked for bringing knowledge to Adam and Eve and freeing them from the slavery of God. Human beings in our minds are darkened to the point that we worship Not the giver, but his creation. Not the creator, but his creation. Not the giver, but the gift. Now, is that true? (laughs) Do do all people know God? Um, Well, his point is not to say that people actively, every human being actively believes that there is a God. But yes, in one sense, there is just clear evidence for the existence of God. Here it is. Everything. (laughs) Why does the universe exist at all? Uh, Why is there something rather than nothing? Matter can neither be created nor destroyed. Why is it here? How did it get here? It's obvious. There is matter. There is a universe. And above and beyond that, there is life. 
There is things that are living, growing things like trees and beasts of the fields and birds of the sky. And then human beings exist in this universe. If that's not enough evidence, there's the immaterial. This language in all of its complexity. There's logic. The fact that things actually work and fit together. There's art. There's ethics. There are things that are truly right and truly wrong. Which doesn't actually make sense in a universe in which there is nothing but matter. There is law. There are physical laws that actually work. There's the law of entropy, for example, that things over time with no intelligent guidance break down. They don't tend to order all by themselves. There's consciousness. Friends, protoplasm existing over a long period of time does not create this universe. There's something about it that reveals the very character and power of our creator. There must be an unmoved mover. That being said, people can and do suppress that knowledge of God. We do everything we can to convince ourselves outside of Christ that there is no God or we choose to live as if there is no God, which is ultimately the same thing. This point in this first section is that sin has affected our minds. It's sometimes called by theologians the noetic effects of the fall, that our mentality, our thinking, has been darkened by sin. Everyone comes from a certain bias, including Christians, of course. But be aware, be wary of anyone who says, nope, I just looked at the facts without any sort of interference, and I came to the conclusion that there is no God, or whatever it may be. I'd be very cautious of that. In fact, there was one pretty well-known atheist by the name of Aldous Huxley. Uh, you may have heard of him, Brave New World. His uncle, I believe, was Thomas Huxley, which was, who was uh, so- sometimes called Darwin's henchman. Um, Aldous Huxley, I love this, he admitted, you've got to thank him just for at least admitting what I think most of us would suspect to be true. He said this, I had motives for not wanting the world to have meaning. And consequently assumed that it had none and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. For myself, as no doubt for most of my friends, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. We wanted there to be no God because that means we could do whatever we wanted. This also means, friends, that education by itself will not save us. Education is great. I'm all for education. Uh, Go to school. Learn as much as you can. Study the sciences absolutely 100%. But that outside of God's grace and outside of the gospel will not actually make human beings better. In fact, more educated human beings tend to be no more moral. Uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, one of the most educated men, Uh, of his day said education without values as useful as it is seems rather to make man a more clever devil and when you look at as we looked at earlier things like world war ii or stalinist russia very educated people committed horrendous atrocities notice also that idolatry is a sin of the mind a sin of the heart you worship an object You worship the gift rather than the giver. And friends, don't don't be blind to the fact that we are still idolaters in this country today. We worship our cars and our bank accounts and our celebrities. 
just the same. Our money. Friends, when we come down to it, our own thinking of its nature will always choose its own selfishness outside of the worship of the true and living creator. There's something broken about us. That's why we need a savior. (laughs) That's why we need a savior. But more than that, 24 to 27, our bodies, our bodies are dishonored by sin. Not only our minds darkened, but our bodies dishonored. Therefore, he says, God gave them up. By the way, that phrase is repeated again and again, if you didn't notice it. God gave them up. Isn't it interesting to think that the, the worst thing God can do for human beings is to leave us alone? Sometimes referred to as divine abandonment. For God to leave us to our own devices and to our own sin is perhaps the worst punishment he can give us. Every man does what is right in his own eyes, the way the book of Judges describes it. He leaves us to ourselves. And it says specifically here in this section, he, bought, he leaves us to the lusts of our hearts, to the dishonoring of our bodies, that we exchange the truth of God for a lie, that all that really matters is the pleasures of our bodies. Paul can't help but taking a moment in the middle of this section and just praising God, right? He says, instead of worshiping the creator, who, by the way, is forever blessed, amen. (laughs) He has to take a minute and just say, all right, let's take a break from this depravity talk and just say how glorious, though, is our creator who's made us for himself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. God gave us up to dishonorable passions. And he mentions specifically here, women with women. Lesbianism was known in the ancient Roman world and men with men. Notice he describes it here as against nature. He's not saying this is the worst sin. He isn't even sort of singling it out as particularly evil. He's simply saying it is a blatant and obvious act against nature, against creation. Simply look at your physical body and its organs and you can see an intention of our creator. This is an obvious sense in which we have thrown off restraint and simply do what is right in our own eyes. Sexual sin, notice this section, by the way, is talking about all different sexual sin. He describes it, impurity, the dishonor of our bodies, our passions. But... To preach the word faithfully, I have to be clear, homosexuality is certainly stated as part of that. There is no ambiguity in the Bible. This is consistent in the Old Testament, it's consistent in the New Testament. It's not bashing, it's not a phobia, a fear. I have enough of my own sin to think about (laughs) and consider. And remember the context. The context is, this is the world without God that he saves us from. (laughs) This is why we all need a savior. Our bodies are dishonored by sin. When our minds are far from God, the first section, the use of our bodies for sin follows shortly after. You see this in all different ways too, by the way. Not just sexual sin, but substance abuse narcotics and prescription medication, alcoholism. What are we doing? We're destroying the bodies that God has given us. Sometimes even self-mutilation or even suicidal thoughts, a desire to take our own life, our darkened minds lead to the destruction of our bodies. Sin is a cruel master. We are horrible gods. (laughs) We are amazing creatures made in the image of God, we're just really, really bad at trying to be God. And when we try it, we ruin everything, including ourselves. 
28-32, sort of the drop pan, all-inclusive statement here about sin. Our entire lives are broken by sin. Uh, They're not fit to acknowledge God, so God gave them up once again to do what ought not to be done. There is an ought to this universe. There is a moral law, an ethic to our existence. And then he gives this list of sins that is just daunting. Unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife. I won't even list all of them over again here. But notice this list and its diversity. It hits on everyone, right? I mean, if you weren't hit by at least a half dozen of these sins, you're not considering your own heart very well. He even lists what we would consider today to be sort of peccadillos, you know, venial, not that important. Disobeying your parents. I mean, who doesn't disobey their parents when you're young? Gossip. We kind of accept that to some degree. Boastful. Who isn't bragging every so often? And he ends this section by saying, not only do they practice them and deserve death, that's the penalty for sin ever since the garden. The day you eat of this, you will surely die. That's always been a connection. That's been the result of sin. But they approve of those who do. Sin wants to justify itself. It's one thing to say, and many people have said this to me, and I'm sure I've said this, that I gave in to temptation. I was weak. I failed. (laughs) Mea culpa. I, I am a sinner and I messed up. It's another thing, though, to start a crusade to justify sin. To pass laws to justify sin. To create a movement to start clubs in different organizations to try to justify sin. Actually, I respect someone who says, you know what, I know what the Bible says, and yeah, I'm a rebel, and I just don't obey it. I I respect that more than the person who says, well, the Bible doesn't say that, and I can kind of make it fit to my life and the way I want to live. The further we go from God, individually and as a culture, the further we get to justifying our own sin. We saw this with Rome. By the way, Augustine said this was why Rome fell. It was not just from the Visigoths invading them. So this here, talking to the church in Rome, it was an internal corruption of the empire. Just a couple other modern examples. I think the Jim Crow laws for a hundred years after the Civil War, justifying institutional racism and abortion. It's one thing to say this was a a sinful thing to do, but I did it. It's another thing to say we should start a crusade for this. And by the way, if that is a sin you've committed, there is grace and forgiveness for you. Welcome to the club of sinners. Our entire lives are broken by sin. Every area of our life has been affected by it. And not for the better. All it does is ruin. That doesn't mean that God can't take evil in your life and use it for good. He does that all the time. <laughs> in fact, I can look at my own life. Many of you could look at your own life and say, the, the worst thing in my life, God took and turned it around and used that for the greatest good. That's how, that's how great our God is. But that doesn't justify our sin. It also doesn't mean that people are as bad as they can be. By the way, there's a lot of good in this world. Um, there's common grace, or sometimes called provenient grace. Um, Total depravity means total in its reach, not total in its depth. Um, People aren't nearly as bad as we can be. That's why laws and governments and stuff can't actually do great good in this world. But I think the further and the deeper we look into history, into others, 
and especially into our own hearts, the worse it looks. Sin is why we need a Savior. This is only chapter one. (laughs) Now keep in mind, after he, halfway through chapter three, he spends the rest of the entire letter talking about the glory of the gospel. But you might say, what about religion, Pastor Rick? What about around the world? What about Judaism in particular? What about the inner conscience? And we, that's what he's going to deal with in the next chapter and a half or so. The good news is coming. But we must see evil as evil. We have to diagnose it correctly. This is a, a joke because it's so serious right now, okay? There's a guy who goes to see his doctor, and the doctor says, I've diagnosed your problem, and you only have 10 to live. And the, doctor, and the patient says, 10 what, doctor? 10 months? 10 days? And the doctor says, 9, 8, 7. All right, there we go. All right. We need, we need the right diagnosis of our sin. We need to see it for what it is so that we can see the remedy so clearly. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the son of God who's came to save sinners. Jesus lived 33 years in this world, killed him. But through his death, he saves sinners. And through his resurrection, he promises us eternal life. To steal a section from later on in Romans, to paraphrase it, wretched human beings that we are, who will deliver us from this, these bodies of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. God's plan was that through him, we have the Savior we need. We have the remedy. Pray with me. Gracious Father, we we thank you for the truth of your word that clarifies to us uh, our status, our state without God. And we are far from you, and we mess things up really bad. But Lord, all that does is bring out the glory of the gospel, the joy of having a Savior, the joy of Jesus Christ, the righteous one who rescues us, all the more clearly that the remedy, that the antidote to our sin that forgiveness and grace and mercy and life eternal awaits those who put their faith in him. And it's a process. Sin doesn't disappear the day we believe. It's an ongoing struggle and battle to grow, but our salvation is secure in him. And so, Lord, as we sing, and as even we get ready to celebrate communion, we remember the body of Christ broken and the blood of Jesus shed to make us yours in this world and for all eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.